If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Habakkuk uh, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be picking it up again here uh, this morning as we continue this series that we've called uh, from, faith, from Fear to Faith, not the other way around, not from faith to fear, from fear to faith. We're in Habakkuk 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. As you're turning there, I just want to, uh, to take just a second to thank you. Um, I, I want to... I want to thank you for your faithfulness and worship. I know that might seem like something that would be just sort of assumed or understood, but I mean that. I want to thank you for your faithfulness and worship, for your commitment to honoring uh, the Lord's Day each week, each Sunday. Um, I know that you have, especially this time of year, that you have a lot of other options. At least that's how we tend to see it. We could be out on the lake. We could go to the mountains. We're in Columbia, for crying out loud. You're two hours away from anything you could possibly want to do. Um, And for what you would do and where you would go each Sunday. But week after week, uh, you come here and you you sing and you pray and you uh, meet with God and hear His Word. And, and so I'm just thankful to be able uh, to be here and to be a part of that with you. And, and that, that this is the highlight of the week for me, is getting to be here with God's people. Okay, so now let's, uh, let's just get to it here this morning. Would you stand with me if you are able? And let's turn our attention, let's fix our eyes on the Lord as He speaks to us through his word. We stand because in this moment it is the king of creation, the king of all the universe, the king, period, who is speaking to us. This is Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, as we have already confessed, as we have already expressed and and. and and prayed to you, we are thankful to be here today with you. That this is not about seeing, seeing our family. That's a, that's a residual benefit of being part of the church as we get to be with God's people. But today is about meeting with you. It's about hearing from you. It's about worshiping you. It's about, it's about fixing our eyes on you and allowing your word to shape us. To come before it in humility. To come together here before you with a, with a humble spirit with a contrite spirit, a spirit that says, Lord, I know my failings, my sin is ever before me, but would you come now and redeem us? Would you come and speak to us that our deaf ears might hear from you? Would you come and be so present and so brightly shining before us that our blind eyes cannot help but see you? And would you burn away the distractions that we carried in here with us? Let us just be with you for the next few moments 
And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to start uh, out this, this a little bit differently than we normally do. Okay, We're going to start out here uh, today with a question. Uh, and, and, uh, but since we're a Presbyterian church and we like to do things decently and in order, um, I, want you to, um, I want you to prepare yourself because some of you are going to be tempted to shout this out. I know. I can just see it on you. Y'all are such a vocal people. Um, all of you laughing, have, I don't know what y'all are laughing at. It's true. Y'all are amening left and right, just clapping your hands, going nuts every Sunday. I need y'all to calm down for just a minute here, all right? Um, I, I, want, I, want us to be, I want us to be decent and orderly. I'm totally uh, kidding. I would love for more volume from you guys. Anyway, uh, we're, but we're going to work through this question. I'm going to give it to you, then we're going to work through it a little bit, and then we'll come, we'll come back to it. So here, here's the question, all right? Where do you run when everything in your life feels like it is spiraling out of control? That's the question. Where do you look in those moments? I want you to answer that in your own heart right now. I want you to, you can tune me out for half a second. Just answer that question. Where do you run when everything in your life feels like it's spiraling out of control? I want you to hold on to that. I want you to see this as an opportunity that you're being given right now to be completely honest with yourself. Don't, don't lie to yourself, okay? Just be honest with yourself. Where do I go when the storm of life <clears throat> begins to overwhelm me? And I want you to honestly hold on to whatever it was that, that first popped into your mind when you were asked that question. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend or a parent. Maybe it's some hobby. Maybe it's a sport that you play. Um, maybe you're a fixer, and when stuff starts going wrong, you just immediately start doing stuff, whether it's actually fixing the problem or not. Maybe you literally run somewhere. Like maybe when stuff starts to go nuts, you go to the mountains or you go to the coast or you go to some actual place. Maybe, maybe you just run to your bed and you stay there and refuse to come out of it. But everybody runs somewhere. Wherever it is, I just want you to be completely honest with yourself because you see, that is exactly where we find Habakkuk in this passage. All right, his world is spiraling out of control. He's at the place, he's at that place where the only thing that he can do is just sort of hold out his hands and look to the heavens and wonder and, and at, at what in the world is going on. He had that. He had thought that things were bad. Remember this, when we started into Habakkuk, he had thought that things were bad. He had been crying out to God before we even met him. And so by the time we do meet him here in chapter 1 of, his, of this book, he's asking, how long? That's his cry to God at this point. He's not going, hey man, I'm seeing some stuff. He's going, how long shall I cry for help? His house is a mess. His family is falling apart. They're, they're fighting each other. They're at each other's throats, kicking and scratching and clawing. It's like when, you, when one of the kids walks in the room with bite marks on their arm, and you know that it's just, it's, everything has reached that point of no return. That's where Habakkuk is. Everything in his world is upside down, and he's like Clark Griswold, just wondering, can it possibly get any worse? Everything is messed up. That's where Habakkuk is here in verse 12. He had cried out to God. He had cried out repeatedly to God. He had hoped that God would respond to him. He had anticipated that God would, in fact, respond to him. And he'd maybe even gotten to the point in there where he doubted that God would respond to him. But as we saw last week, God does respond. He responds because he sees what's happening. He responds because he hears what's happening 
He responds because God is not indifferent to suffering. He does not turn a blind eye to injustice. And so what God says, and we saw this last week, is that God is doing something about it, okay? At this point in the story, he's not drawing up a plan. He's not bringing in the Holy Trinity to kind of talk through stuff. He's not going, Spirit, what do you think we should do on this? And Son, what do you think? He's going, no, we have this plan from all eternity, and it is working out right now, okay? So he's not going to the truck to get the right tool. He's already at work, He's raising up the Chaldeans. He has them in his hands. as the new Babylonians. He has them in his hand. He's at work right now. But Habakkuk isn't going to like what he's doing. You see, Habakkuk had rightly diagnosed the problem with God's people. But he never expected for even a moment that the Chaldeans would be God's prescription to fix that. And so at this point, God has responded, but the problem is that his response isn't what Habakkuk was looking for. And what we see now, what Habakkuk does here is he really gives us, he gives you and I this blueprint for how to biblically deal with problems in this life. You see, he's not happy. He's got a problem. He's emotionally distraught. He is in a bad, bad place right now. And you and I are given in him the authentic picture of a man of God struggling with the plans of God. And what we see in his response is what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the four steps to dealing with problems. So I want to just lay those out for you. I'm telling you this is a little bit different than normal. I'm going to lay out the, the four steps for you, and then we're, going to, then we're going to go through them. And here's the first step. So if you want to figure out how do you biblically deal with problems, here is step one, and it's going to sound so simple it's going to bother you. The first step is to stop and think. Stop and think. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds, that sounds like something my dad would tell me when I was a kid, when I was about to do something that I probably should not do, right? He'd tell you, hey, hey, you need to think about some stuff here before you do that. Stop and think is so profoundly simple, and that's what makes the practice so elusive in our species, okay? We're legitimately bad at it. We are. Even the smartest man in here, I love you, you're bad. When stuff goes wrong, we're bad at stopping to think, to just kind of process what's happened. And so our, our natural leaning is, 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 is not towards thought as much as it is towards response. And so we emulate the culture of our day when we operate by the, by the mantra of shoot first and ask questions later. When we adopt practices of, it's, it's, easy, it's better to ask forgiveness than it is permission. We're emulating the culture. That's not the ethic that Jesus gave to his people. And so in a culture of speak first, uh, speak louder, and speak always, which is the culture in which we find ourselves, always be speaking, we are, we are we're actually emulating a culture that's so counter to Scripture that it it, it, it's not even hard to see why the world looks at the church as if, as if we don't really matter. The words of James 1.19 are about as countercultural as you will find, where he tells the brotherhood of believers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. My dad always told me that God gave me one mouth and two ears, and we should use them appropriately. It may seem simple, but stopping to think is, is often just the first missed step and addressing a problem. The second step that we see is what Lloyd-Jones calls restate the basic principles. 
That sounds a little formal, doesn't it? Restate the basic principles. When you start to think, you must not begin with the immediate problem. You have to begin further back. It's it's what we call the strategy of indirect approach. It's the strategy of reminding ourselves of those things in life, the things in life that that we are absolutely certain of. It's about finding solid footing, a foundation on which we can begin to really look at the problem. What ends up happening so much of the time is we lose track of what is actually true. I remember watching, uh, it was his last year playing in the NBA, and he was coming through Charlotte, and some, me and my, some of my friends bought the cheapest tickets you could get to go watch Michael Jordan play uh, against, the, against the Charlotte Hornets. And, um, and so he, uh, most of the guys on the team, they all, everybody's lined up around the court. Most of the guys come out and they shoot for hours. They play, they play more basketball on a given day than most people play an entire year. They come out and they shoot hundreds and hundreds of shots. And, and everybody, everybody fan is there at the side of the, uh, of the court waiting for Michael to come out. I mean, everybody, that's the only reason anybody's at this game, all right? It was the Wizards versus the Hornets. And, and you couldn't name another player who played on any of those teams. Everybody's just waiting for Michael to come out. And he does, finally. After everybody else has been out there for hours, he comes out for 10 minutes and he stood at the free throw line and he shot 10 free throws. That was it. It was an entire warm. And of course, he made all, all 10 of them. And he came out and he shot 10 free throws. And we were talking after, after the game. We're like, that was really weird. I mean, like he didn't come out and get loose. He didn't come out and stretch. He just came out and shot 10 free throws. And I ended up finding an article where he talked about his pregame routine. He goes, you know, I come to the free throw line because it never moves. It's always at the same spot. The goal's always at the same spot. The free throw line's always at the same spot. So I come out there and I find my center. I come out there and he called it calibrating. I come out there and I find that center, that place, that locus that never shifts, that never changes, and everything comes off of that one shot. And so the greatest player in the world didn't spend hours and hours shooting crazy shots. He came out there and shot the most basic shot that you can find. Because that was the one that every other shot is based off of. That is what it looks like. And when we find ourselves in trouble, when our foundation feels like it's shaking, we need to find where rock bottom is. We need to find that place where truth is found. In times of trouble and crisis, we've got to calibrate. We have to restate the basic principles and find that foundation in order that we might remember what's true. And here's the third step. It's to apply is to apply the principles to the problem. And this is critical. You see, the other day when, uh, this is the time of year when we, well, it was until 100 degrees every day this week. But this was the time of year that you try and go fishing every once in a while with the boys. And so we'll go out on the boat and, <clears throat> and if you time it right, the fish are all over the place. And it's like the greatest scene in the world. You just throw anything at them and they bite it. It's great. And so we're out there and we're not finding anything. And I'm looking with binoculars out across the water because you look for birds to see if there's anything there. Anyway, I'm giving you more detail on that than you need to know. And but uh, so Logan, our little one, he wanted to help do that, you know, help do that. So he, I give him the binoculars and what does he do? If you've ever given a child a a pair of binoculars, you know exactly what they do. They pick them up and they put the fat into their eyes, right? Because that's the easy side. And so he's looking, man, and he is, he's looking all over the lake, but everything now is 20 times further away than it was supposed to be. But he is dedicated. He's standing up on the bow. It's pretty epic. The other son and I are looking at each other going, what in the world, right? Just please don't drop him in the lake. And we're just watching him and he is so focused and he pronounces with a great authority, all the authority that a five-year-old can muster, there is no fish out here. Right? I mean, he's just, and to be honest, he was, he was 100% correct. All right? We didn't catch a thing. But, he, but it wasn't because he was using the tool. Right? He was looking at it backwards. He's looking at it in the wrong direction. So often that's what we do. So often that's exactly what we do. 
we end up looking at problems. We end up looking at situations in life in the wrong direction. When a problem comes our way, we have the tendency to look at it backwards. We take the problem as the starting point, and we tend to apply the problem to the principles. That's why people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? See, we start with the problem of bad things rather than the idea of good people. But if we started with good people, we know there's only one of those, and so it's I, I can't tell you who said it because I refuse to quote him, but somebody once said, uh, when asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? He said, well, that only happened once, and he volunteered. You see, we have to take what we know to be true and allow that to be the filter through which we see the problem, not the other way around. Otherwise, in the problems in our lives, we end up looking a lot like a five-year-old with a backwards pair of binoculars trying to solve the world's problems. And we see all of this here in this passage. We see it all played out right here in this passage. Look back at verse 12 with me. All right, Habakkuk has recognized that God has responded to his cry. He's heard that God is at work, but he's not a fan of the plan that God has laid out for him. And here is how he begins to work through the problem. Okay, We see him stop and think, and he restates the basic principles. He says to God, did you see this? It's verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. You see, he's establishing right out of the gate what's true. That's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's not pointing at the Chaldeans. He's not pointing off in the distance at the marauders who are coming in to run them over. He's pointing at God. He's not pointing at the problem of sin and the people of God. He's not pointing at all the stuff that's wrong in his family. He's pointing toward God at this point in time. When he's faced with the plan and the purpose of God that he doesn't understand, he doesn't begin with the problem. He begins by looking to, by remembering and establishing the only true constant in the universe. He begins with God. He says that God is from everlasting. He's, he's not asking a question at this point, by the way. He's making a statement. He's stating a fact. He's going, hey man, you are from eternity. Like you're from everlasting, you're from here. If, if you have a hard time embracing time going that way for infinity, God is infinity this way too. So that's the question that you're a child as you're lying in bed and you go, what does it mean to be eternal? And you go, he's going to last forever. No, f- forever. There's no line with him. He just exists outside of time as we know it. God is, this most, is the most profoundly unexplainable thing in so many ways and yet, and yet we see the truth in it that it has to be. You don't, you don't have a beginning. You don't have an end. You're that uncaused cause upon which all of creation is dependent. And then what does he call him? Look there again at verse 12. He addresses him as, O Lord my God. He's literally saying, and I know you'll know the first one, he's literally saying, Yahweh Eloha Ani. And I don't do a whole lot of Hebrew for y'all normally, but I did that one pretty well. You should be impressed, okay? He, that's, what he, that's what he called him. It's, it's about, that's, by the way, that's the only time pastors quote Hebrew or Greek. It's just so you'll be like, dang, that guy's smart. I'll wear glasses at some point so you'll really believe it, but I, I don't have them yet. That's what he calls him. It's his covenant God. That's what he's calling him there. He is the faithful one. That's how Habakkuk is recentering everything, not on the problem that's coming. He's centering on the one who is faithful. He's centering on the one constant in all the universe. He's going right back to the free throw line here. It's because of that relationship that God established with Abraham that Habakkuk can say, we shall not die. He says, oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. It's that God has assigned the Chaldeans this role. 
It's that the Chaldeans are a judgment. That's, that's what, that they're a tool in God's hand. It's that they are a, a, a reproof. That's a form of discipline. That's what reproof is, to discipline against the sin of God's people. And by the way, this is exactly what Habakkuk had asked for, right? He said, there's a problem. Your people are all messed up. You need to come and fix this. And God goes, I am fixing it. And now Habakkuk goes, I don't like the way you're fixing it. Look at verse 13. Habakkuk says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's not saying that God is blind there, by the way. He's not saying that God is unable to see, but that God is altogether holy. That's what he's establishing here. He's going right back again to the foundation. He's going to those those essentials. He's going to the attributes of God. He's saying, you are holy. It's both his separateness from us and his moral uprightness. Lloyd-Jones said said it's like Habakkuk is saying, whatever else I am uncertain of, I know that God cannot look upon evil without hating it. And whatever else I'm uncertain of, I might be confused about this, I might be confused about this, I don't know why I'm this tall, I don't know why I'm this short, I don't know why I'm this heavy, I don't know why I'm this thin, I don't know, I might, know not, I might not know a whole lot of things, but I do know this, God cannot look upon evil without hating it. Is that all the evil, both from the body of God's people and from the world, all of it is against the nature and the character of a holy God. And, and then he's going, if this is true, and I know that it is, that God hates sin, that he must hate sin because he is holy, that he must hate sin. If this is true, and I know it is, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I know this is true, so then how can this be? How can you allow this to happen? He's going, I know that we're bad. I know that we're bad, but but we aren't as bad as them. I know that we're bad. I know that we're sinful, but we're not as bad and we're not as sinful as they are. I mean, how many times do we do this? How often do we fall into that trap ourselves of thinking, sure, I shouldn't be doing this, but at least I'm not doing that. How quickly do we turn to justifying ourselves against the worst characteristics of others? That's what happens when we use the wrong filter. When we begin to use ourselves as the filter, we use our desires, we use our preferences, our comforts, we end up judging right and wrong against the filter of what we pick and choose. And that's a completely subjective approach to the reality of objective truth. And you could apply that across the board. I mean, Habakkuk isn't wrong that the Chaldeans are bad. Okay, he's not. He's 100% right. The Chaldeans are really bad. They are. They're the ones who bring all of them up with a hook. Did you see that line in there? It says they bring them all up with a hook. Nearly every commentator that you read will tell you that's not a metaphorical line, that that's an actual literal practice that the Chaldeans put in place, that they adopted from the Syrians, meaning when they captured you, they put a hook in your mouth like you were a fish. They attached that line to whoever was walking before you, and they marched your behind from your country into another country with a fish hook in your mouth. As a way of shaming you, as a way of humiliating you, as a way of controlling you. They treated their captives as the fish of the sea. And Habakkuk is going, seriously, God? You're going to allow that to happen to your fish? You're going to allow that to happen to your sheep? Surely you aren't going to let these guys come in and wipe out your whole pond. Surely you aren't going to allow these people who in their pride actually believe 
that it is only by the strength of their arm that they prosper in this world, that they really think that they are the king of the universe. Surely you won't. Surely they won't be allowed to serve as an instrument in your hand to discipline your own covenant people. He's saying, this is what Habakkuk is saying, and some of you will know this moment in your own life. You'll say, I hear you, God. I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't make any sense. But God's already given the answer. And so we go back to that original question. Where do you run to when everything in your life feels like it is just spiraling out of control? And so what do we do? We work through the steps, right? We said that we pause to think and we consider the problem. Then we restate the basic principles, right? To establish a a true filter through which to view or to apply the basic principles to the problem at hand. Uh, Those are the steps to dealing with the problem. And, And Habakkuk has done that. Like he's done that. We've even seen it here. He's done all three of those and yet he still doesn't understand it hasn't worked. I mean, I've done the process. I've gone through the work. I did everything I was supposed to do. I wrote it out. I took good notes when you were talking. I did everything that you told me to do. And still, I find myself not understanding that this doesn't make sense to me. The other day, we were playing Candyland. If you're a parent, you know the misery that is. Because Candyland has no actual skill involved. It's... It's the worst, honestly. Um, so I'm playing with my five-year-old, and, uh, and he's good at it, you know? Like, how you be good at But he is. And it makes no sense. I cannot beat this kid at Candyland. I inevitably get the gumdrop thing and have to go back to the beginning, and he gets the, like, the, like uh, whatever it is, the, like, peppermint one, and gets to go to the end, and I'm stuck in the gumdrop forest by the time it's all said and done. And I'm going, this doesn't make any sense. I'm smarter. I'm wiser. I'm older. I'm more experienced. I've played Candyland way more times than he has in my life. How come he still beats me? God, it doesn't make any sense. That's how it feels at times to navigate our way through this world. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. But it's not going the way I want it to go. Somehow, somehow the kid is winning. I told you there were four steps and I gave you three. So here's the fourth. If still in doubt, commit the problem to God in faith. If still in doubt, commit the problem to God in faith. And faith is that even when everything is spiraling out of control, when the ground beneath our feet is shaking, when the heart is too broken, when the legs are too tired, and the path in front of us seems too far to walk, still the cry of the Christian heart is we will trust in the Lord our God. When conflict comes to our door, when disappointment decides that we should be friends, and, that, and when everything that we know about what's coming makes makes no sense, we go back to what we know. We go back to the ultimate constant. We go back to that uncaused cause. We go back to God. Ken Sandy says this. He says, trusting God means that in spite of our questions, doubts, and our fears, we draw on his grace and continue to believe that he is loving, that he is in control, and that he is always working for our good. It's remembering that in his sovereignty, He is totally independent of any influence. 
That God is totally in, independent of any influence. He is unlimited in strength and power and authority. That means that allergies do not get to him. He's not grumpy at the end of the day because his nose and throat were burning all day. That's not how it works with God. He doesn't have bad traffic after a long day. doesn't get him, even if he lived here in Lexington. Someone forgetting his birthday doesn't get him. Rain on his wedding day in July in South Carolina doesn't get him. He's above all that. He's higher than all of that. And so what that means is that it means that we can come to God, we can come to Him at any time. Because there's no such thing as a wrong time with God. He's never too tired. He's never too busy. He's never uninterested. In fact, uh, it's that He wants you to come to Him with your baggage. James Boyce says He wants you to make your problems His problems. I like that. God wants you to make your problems his problems. He wants you to knock on his door. He wants you to crawl up in the big chair with him. He wants you to level with him in those moments of doubt, in those moments of insecurity, in those moments of fear and pain and disappointment. He he wants all that. And there's proof of it. There's proof. The proof of that, the proof that God is interested in your mess, that he isn't too far away to talk with you or to meet with you, The proof of that, the apex example, the pinnacle example of God's true and abiding love for you is at the cross. You see, it's at the cross that we see the commitment of God to to His glory and our good. And we know this, and we believe it. We hold fast to it because we know that the cross wasn't a mistake and the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a blip on the radar of history where God took his eyes off the road for a second. Peter makes it very clear in Acts 2.23, this is what he says, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what Peter says. So Jesus didn't stumble onto the cross. He made his way there. It was God's plan and purpose from before the foundation of the earth. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he was fulfilling the redemptive promise of God, receiving the bruise on his heel as he crushed the head of the serpent. That's where we run in those times of chaos. That's where we run when we are at our absolute limit and we, and we don't just think, but we know that the world is out of our control. We run to the one who spoke the world into existence. We run to the one who sustains each moment, even now. The one who presently is not just saying to you, I hope you're good. He's saying to you, live right now. That's where we run. It's as simple as this, that when the storm of life is raging and it feels like the ship is going to go down, we run to the one who literally said to the storm, be still, and it obeyed him. We run to the one who paid the price for our chaos, who died so that we might live, and we trust that he is not just over us, but because of the cross, we know that he is for us. Where do you run when everything in your life feels like it's just spiraling out of control? Like Habakkuk, we run to God. Like Habakkuk, we identify with God. Like Habakkuk, we proclaim God. Like Habakkuk, we commune with God. Like Habakkuk, we see through the filter of God what's happening in the world. And so now the sick child is is seen through the filter that God is for us. 
And now the frustration of not being able to, not being able to do what we feel like God wants us to do is seen through the filter of God has a better plan for us. We run to God. We cling to Christ. And when we do that, usually the first thing we realize is that he's been clinging to us the whole time too. I think we could stand to remember that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, confess to you that so often my desire is to chase after my own dreams, my own will, my own, my own preferences. I confess that I get frustrated with you, that I, that I get aggravated when you don't do things according to my time, my, my time plan, <laughs> that, I, that I want everything to be when I want it to be. Lord, I am the most narcissistic person in the world if everybody knew my heart. I don't think I'm alone in that. Lord, I confess to you that I treat myself too often as if I'm the king. But I want to submit that to you today. I want to confess that. I want to submit that to you, that that I am not in control and that you are. And that your plans and your purpose are better than mine. That that's not a subjective hope. That's not an ethereal desire. But that is an actual true fact of life, that your plan and your purpose are better than mine. And so, Lord, I pray pray that you'd conform my heart to that. That in your grace and in your mercy and in your patience with someone who needs so much patience, that you would continue to make me look more and more like your son as I look less and less like myself. I pray that for your church. I pray that for our witness in this community and beyond and I pray that we'd look like Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the sacrifice that he has given for us, that you have given for us. I pray that you would fill our hearts with more and more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So y'all stand and respond singing, Our God.